Welcome to the Stoyas podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. In this second part of our two-part bilingual series on slavery in Spain's colonies in Africa, I'll be speaking with Ali Altuma about slavery in the Spanish Sahara. Dr. Altuma is a researcher at the Center for History at Sciences Po Paris and author of the forthcoming article, Leaving the Master and Into the Desert, Slave Escapes in the Spanish Sahara, Colonial Attitudes and Slave Agencies. Today, we'll be discussing his research in this area, which seeks to recover the stories of slaves in Western Sahara from the Spanish colonial archives. So Ali, welcome back to the program. Thank you, happy to be back. All right, so could you start by giving us a little bit of background on Western Sahara? What were the principal ethnic groups there and what was the basis of the economy in this desert region? Um, well, the Spanish Sahara, uh, of course, uh, the, covers the area between uh, uh, the desert area between South Morocco and Mauritania and uh, is divided into the Sagi Al Hamra and the Rio de Oro. Uh, of course, in the times of the Spanish, uh, also uh, added to it administratively was uh, Cabo Jubi, the area, but, but uh, that one was officially a part of the Moroccan protectorate, so it's not uh, a sovereign territory of the Spanish. Now, um, traditionally, I mean, in simplistic terms, the uh, ethnic groups that uh, occupied uh, the Sahara uh, consisted of uh, Arabs, Berbers, and Black African descendants. Although most of the Arabs are rather uh, Arabs by, uh, by virtue of uh, linguistic and cultural Arabization rather than uh, descendants from, from, from the Arabs who came to North Africa. Uh, so mostly they are Berbers uh, with an Arabic culture. And the language of the territory was the Arabic dialect of Hassaniya. But more important than the um, ethnic composition is the um, tribal hierarchy that uh, governed the, the social life of that area. So we have these tribal confederations, but we also have a kind of uh, social uh, hierarchy that consists of an elite. Uh, and this elite is formed by the so-called Shurafa, who uh, are, uh, they claim descendancy from the Prophet uh, Muhammad. And then there are the so-called uh, warrior uh, tribes. And then there are the Zwaya, who are the kind of religious literary class. And uh, well, at least that is the origin of these elites. And below them, we have the tributary classes, whether they uh, are fishermen or uh, herders. Uh, these are uh, tribal members who uh, used to pay uh, tributes to the uh, elite uh, classes. Now, the tributary system that the benefits that these elites uh, reap from this tributary system diminish with the coming of the colonial age but they uh, still play part in, in, so to speak, how everyone should know his, his or her place. Mm -hmm. Then below them, there are the so-called uh, Mahareros in Spanish or Ma'alimin, uh, who are uh, craftsmen uh, who work in uh, metal and wood uh, crafts. And then there are the uh, Igawan who are uh, entertainers, musicians mainly. Below them, there are the Haratin, who were mentioned before in the in the episode with Matteo Dieste, black uh, people of uh, who were slaves and uh, uh, they uh, were manumitted, became freedmen. So they are 
former slaves and below them at the bottom of this social hierarchy are the slaves. Wow, thank you. That's um, an incredibly complex culture. It's very interesting to hear all those different levels of hierarchy. Um, but you, could you also say a little bit about uh, what the basis for the economy was? What kinds of trade, for instance, were primarily taking place? Yes. Um, well, um, I mean, there, there, there was, of course, uh, uh, the fishery. We, 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 we already mentioned the, the, those uh, fishermen who played the tributes. So mm -hmm. there was a, a fishing uh, uh, part of the economy. There was some uh, sort of agricultural activity, mostly barley, but because of the climate, that wasn't uh, uh, stable uh, enough. And uh, the number of hectares uh, would vary according to rainfall. So, for example, for the period I'm studying in 1946, it diminishes a lot by uh, by more than half. Wow. Um, therefore, the most uh, prominent uh, economical activity uh, that sustained the majority of the population in Sahara is uh, animal husbandry, especially camels, to a lesser extent sheep, but also uh, um, goats. And, okay. But these also could suffer from the climate. So we also have, like, from 1946 to 1948, a period of drought that decimates the number of of the cattle available. Wow! So you have this extremely complex society in this very difficult climate. But you already mentioned that of all these levels of society, slaves were, of course, at the very bottom. So. What role did the slaves traditionally play in the society? Um, you know, where did they usually come from and, and what kind of economic roles within that system did they fulfill? Their origins, uh, I mean, there's a, they go back a long way uh, back in, in history. The slaves, they were brought into southern Morocco and to this uh, area um, from between the 11th to the 19th century and also to, to also towards the, uh, the first part of the 20th century. Um, some of the slaves were uh, brought by uh, war activities, raids, and that was prior to the establishment of the, of the Spanish rule. Um, others were uh, simply bought, either from uh, Mauritania and to a lesser extent from southern Morocco. Uh, and many of them were, after many generations, they were simply born within within the tribe. They played an important role in the economic activity, in the most important economic activity, which is camel herding. Um, the slaves who were born within the, the tribe were uh, raised from, uh, were taught uh, camel herding from an early age. We know from the workshop uh, of the ethnographer Sofia Caratini, um, who was doing research, but it was in the 70s and among the Arghibats on the other side of the border with, of the Sahara, that uh, children as uh, young as eight and even younger could be uh, start training for uh, to become camel herders. Wow. But they also they also uh, played uh, part in other uh, important activities like uh, tending to uh, water wells, which sometimes would have been a dangerous job because uh, they could slip and 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 fall into the well without anyone present, and and uh, uh, some of them would die as a result of that. Um, they could also be uh, sent to work uh, in the 
few number of factories along the coast that were established by the Spanish, and therefore their masters were uh, would lend the labor of their slaves to uh, either Spanish entrepreneurs or other uh, local entrepreneurs. They could work on um, the building of roads and even uh, managing a lighthouse, for example. So last month we discussed slavery um, in northern Morocco with Giuseppe Luis Matteo Diesti. Uh, so what similarities and differences did you notice uh, between the slavery uh, system to the north there versus here in the Sahara? Well, of course, he was talking about uh, mainly the Tatas, the mm-hmm. who worked in, in domestic service. But there's uh, a lot of similarities in terms of uh, their origin. Uh, from uh, mainly West Africa, as he as he said, South Morocco. In in the case of the Sahara, they came mainly from Mauritania, also from South Morocco. Um, they could, uh, in terms of their uh, the acquisition of slaves, um, you had uh, donation, uh, commercial transactions. Prior to 1954, when the Spanish uh, established the rule. Um, uh, war activities that were well basically captured through raids. Um, we have also uh, one of the other similarities is, is these emotional ties that's the, that uh, are formed between the families of the of the of the masters and the, some of these slaves, especially the f- f- female slaves, um, between children of the master and and the female slaves. Is, uh, in many cases. The son of a master is in need of a wet nurse because his mother is incapable of uh, giving him milk, and that, uh, and in case uh, that uh, slave woman whom the wet nurse also has a child, then these two become uh, milk brothers, and that could that 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 bond that is formed through uh, that uh, nursery could lead later to the manumission of the milk mother, but also to the manumission of the milk brother by the son who then uh, inherits uh, his milk mother. So those are the, uh, those some, are some of the uh, similarities, but also there are similarities in, in cases of, for uh, example, names. He mentioned that uh, the standard names given to slaves uh, denote happiness, beauty, or blessing. And this is we also find in, in, in the Sahara. We also find the names of uh, Mabrook, Mabrook, Mas'ud, Mas'ud, that, that type of names. And um, in addition to the fact that they take the surnames of the families that own them or the tribes where they live. Uh, and that means that even if they run away and go to the coast in search of freedom, um, the Spanish would still register them un- under their tribal uh, names, which means that there is a continuous uh, link between them and their former uh, master. I also wanted to bring the Spanish into the equation here, which you already mentioned a little bit, but uh, when exactly did the Spanish presence in the Sahara begin and how did it come about? It starts um, towards the end of the 19th century. Well, there was, I mean, in the 15th century, there was a temporary presence in the Spanish Sahara. The place was called uh, Santa Cruz uh, de la Mar, Pequeña. In 1478, was established a, a Spanish uh, kind of settlement, uh, which uh, also captured uh, people from the Sahara and brought them as slaves to the Canary Islands. 
when that presence was removed later in uh, in the first part of the 16th century. And but the modern ambitions of the Spanish in Sahara came about uh, starting from 1881, where a fishery company from the Canaries uh, tried to establish a post there, and then uh, with the so-called scramble for Africa and the Conference of Berlin. A society for Spanish society for Africanistas and colonists sent an expedition uh, that landed in what is now uh, Dakhla or was called Bia uh, Fisneros uh, in Rio de Oro and put their claim to the territory and uh, they put their claim also uh, that uh, that claim they presented it to the Conference of Berlin and they got kind of like approval of the great powers that okay this this area. Is uh, belongs now to to Spain. Mm-hmm. They the Spanish tried to to have more a, a bigger chunk of uh, of the territory. They tried to claim Adrar, which is now in Mauritania, to their uh, territory, but uh, that didn't go well with the French. And in the end, they had to cede it uh, officially to the to the French. Um, still, their presence until 1934 was limited to some small garrisons in coastal areas and some uh, factories. So it was, it was uh, uh, one thing to, to place your claim uh, on the territory and another to actually effectively establish it. There was some, uh, in the beginning, some small resistance uh, to, to the Spanish. In 1885, they, they uh, uh, Asahrawi tribe, um, uh, demolished one of the factories that uh, established were established there in 1885, and uh, uh, but later uh, the Spanish mainly conducted a policy of uh, cordial relations, trying to co-opt uh, tribal leaders uh, by uh, giving them gifts, uh, trying to uh, attract them uh, toward the commercial opportunities with the with the uh, coastal areas uh, and and uh, the factories uh, and uh, that that were put there, but the most of the resistance in the area was was directed against the French. Perhaps uh, probably you have heard of Sheikh Mal Ainain, who uh, in uh, in that area and in Mauritania uh, fought the French, uh, starting from the early twentieth uh, century, and uh, the area remained unstable for a long time until 1934 until the french managed to to effectively destroy uh, last of uh, any remaining resistance to the rule uh, the french kept uh, pressing the spanish to uh, establish their uh, presence in the area assigned to them uh, but the spanish uh, waited until the french finished their counterinsurgency campaign and uh, many of the tribes that fled the French entered the uh, theoretical Spanish zone of influence uh, and the Spanish accepted that in return for uh, submitting to the Spanish rule and disarming and it is then in 1934 based on long years of cordial contacts with uh, tribal leaders especially by the uh, Francisco Benz, who was governor general in the Spanish Sahara and who was born in, in Cuba and then later came to, uh, later served in, in, in North Morocco and then in the Sahara. Uh, he conducted 20 years of expeditions and contacts that uh, laid the ground for, for the relatively peaceful 
establishment of, of Spanish control. So in 1934, with the landing first, uh, landing in Ifni and uh, by uh, Colonel Capaz, and uh, and later the the, the spread of uh, of the Spanish military units uh, throughout the Spanish Sahara. Now we enter the period where it is factually a Spanish territory. So yes, once we have this Spanish presence in the Sahara, and, and particularly from 1934, what was their colonial policy towards slavery in the Sahara? Well, the Spanish had, of course, they had uh, previously in the, uh, the late 19th century abolished slavery in their uh, colonial empire. And officially they would uh, be against the existence of slavery uh, here in the Sahara. But uh, uh, because uh, they had to rely on their good relationship with the tribes, that meant that they could not intervene too much in the internal affairs of the tribes, and that meant also the existence of the slavery system. What they did was, uh, more effectively, um, they combated the, the trafficking of the Sahara. So there was more enforcement of that than of uh, abolishing the slavery itself. That led, with the passage of time, to a reduction of uh, new slaves from outside the territory, which meant that you had uh, that the that the tribes had more slaves who were more, who were indigenous rather than let's say uh, quote unquote imported. But they also, in addition to that, while they did not interfere, I mean they did not take a proactive action. They uh, did reactively help in case uh, a slave ran away and presented his case as being uh, the victim of excessive abuse. Uh, the Spanish would tell the, the tribes that, they, uh, that, the that the Spanish government allows them to retain the slaves, not as a matter of right, but as a matter of privilege. But that on condition that the slaves are not harshly uh, dealt with by their masters. So there were kind of rules of the game that were in practice there. Officially, the, the slavery was uh, uh, abolished. And there is a document in 1943 that says that officially uh, slavery does not, uh, is not allowed. But it also acknowledges that no steps have been taken to eradicate the phenomena and that uh, the slavery, while it uh, should not be uh, promoted, by any practices uh, by the Spanish, any slave who is willing to escape should be uh, given help. But that meant waiting for the slave to take the initiative and not go proactively practicing abolition among the slaves of the tribes. And slavery remained until the end of the Spanish uh, rule in, in, in the Sahara in the mid-1970s although I think in reduced numbers, but also masked by new terminology that refer to slaves as impoverished relatives rather than slaves, which meant that policy of toleration of the existence of uh, the slavery institute was more uh, facilitated by, by, uh, by this, use of, uh, this use of terminology that masked the, the reality. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And it sounds like, once again, a very similar to policy to 
what the Spanish had in uh, northern Morocco, although uh, at least there was some acknowledgement <laughs> that there was an end to slavery, which it sounds like wasn't even particularly the case uh, to the north. In uh, in Tatuan, uh, I think what what helped the Spanish is that um, the, the the slavery of the, of the Tatars it was less visible because it happened behind walls. Mm. Uh, in in Sahara, it was both more visible and less visible. More visible because it 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 was out there, you could see it, and less visible because uh, less people from outside the region had access to. I mean, most of the the Spaniards who were in Spanish Sahara were officers. Uh, there were no, usually there were no journalists or civilians who would go there, and certainly no Europeans uh, or European legations, diplomatic legations that would be present there who could raise a fuss about uh, about this. Yeah, so you mentioned that if there was any effort towards uh, manumission on the part of the government, that the slaves would have to be the first ones to take those steps. So uh, we're going to take a short pause here and then we'll take a look at your research that looks at some of these examples. Welcome back. So let's turn now to some of your research in particular, which uncovers some fascinating stories of slaves who took advantage of the ambiguities in this system that you've described uh, to strive for a better life. So what kinds of sources did you use to find these stories? Uh, well, first, uh, when 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 I started with this project, the Slave Voices, Science Point Paris, um, it was coincided with the with the COVID, so I had to wait a few months before archives became uh, uh, available. Um, well, mainly uh, there was archival research, uh, resources um, from the Archivo General de la Administración in Alcalá de Henares. Uh, there are a few files that are labeled either uh, Asuntos Negros, which means Black Affairs, Esclavos, uh, Comercio de Negros, sale of, uh, of Black people. But there are also uh, monthly incident reports, reports by the so-called uh, nomad police. These are uh, police patrols uh, on camels who roam the Sahara uh, because they had to police a mobile population, of course. There are uh, some rare instances of, of uh, non-Spanish travelers uh, going uh, there, uh, like uh, John Ludwig in the 1950s. Um, and also uh, archival resources from military archives in France, because of, of course they, they were closed there and they were monitoring the situation. And there are some studies about the, the tribal confederacies that, uh, that not only, uh, that move back and forth between French Territory and Spanish territory, but there are uh, there is a, a, a dearth in Arabic language sources, uh, and even Moroccan studies on on the region uh, 
you'll, you'll see that they are much reliant on Spanish language or French language uh, sources rather than Arabic ones. And in the case of the Sahara, uh, I mean, you would expect the, uh, some legal documents connected to, to, to these cases of uh, slaves or slave escapes. Uh, but these are not, uh, there are a few examples of them uh, present in the, in the Spanish archives, but um, none have been found yet in, in Morocco. And of course, the, the troubled political situation that followed the Spanish withdrawal from the Sahara and the war there between the Polisario and the government, of course, led to a situation where uh, such documents could have been lost with the movement of refugees. So that's that's uh, that's a shame that uh, in most cases the the sources are uh, actually not uh, uh, local, and but uh, in the same way that uh, Matteo Dieste said in last uh, episode that he uh, for the, for the for the sake of uh, of the life stories of these slaves he was dependent on the memories of their owners, we are dependent on the memory of these uh, Spanish of uh, on the documents that were written by these Spanish officers. Uh, and in these documents, we see the uh, part of the life stories of these uh, slaves. But uh, these segments of the life stories are dependent on the interest of the writer of these documents, because they are, well, mostly law enforcement officers, and they are interested in those parts of the story that relate to how a slave, for example, was trafficked, where, uh, which route did he take, who were uh, involved in illegal activities, or in case of a, a slave uh, has a dispute with his master and is fleeing, uh, this, is, this is kind of this is an example of disturbance of the peace. So how are they going to, to, to solve this disturbance of the peace? The stories of these slaves only become visible when there is an, kind of an incident or something that disturbs the the normal course of the daily life yeah so let's talk about a couple of the stories that you found i i found that of misauda uh, in your article particularly particularly fascinating could you tell us a bit about uh, what her story was her story is very interesting because uh, um, especially because of the itinerary that 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 uh, she goes through Differently than most of these slaves, she's not from Mauritania, but from uh, from south of Morocco, uh, from the Sous, and uh, particularly from the Haha tribe. And she relates that in this document that is that is written in 1948, she relates that when she was little, she was kidnapped by members of a tribe in Ifni and taken from uh, the Sous to to Ifni, where she was given to an owner, then to another, and then she until she comes to a certain man called Mbarak, who becomes her long-time uh, owner. And from, uh, from him, she gets uh, a child, a son. And that uh, son becomes the motivation for her first escape, because the wife of this Mbarak, who was her owner, uh, abused her son. And uh, that's why, well, well, that she says that that is why she escaped, except she does not escape with her son, she escapes. Uh, alone, and the son remains uh, behind as a herder. And then we see her moving to a series of other men with whom uh, either she's brought there by force or she got to uh, to seek uh, protection in, in the sense that she's trying to, to, to find a better uh, 
master than 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 the last one. After she, she escapes this barrack, uh, she goes to her to her previous owner who had her for a very short time. This barrack brings her back. Then she escapes again after one week. Uh, she tries to go to the French uh, region, but then a sergeant in the Ifni police picks her up and brings her to a merchant. And it seems that he kind of kidnap her, kidnaps her, or maybe he convinces her. That is uh, left. That is left out, but but it, it looks that he's that he, he kidnaps her, and this is one of instance uh, one of the instances where members of the law enforcement who are uh, who, whose job is supposed to be the prevention of of, of slave trafficking they actually participated in uh, in it. Hmm. So she is taken to this uh, merchant who is also called Mbarak, like her previous owner. And he apparently wants to sell her to some someone else, and this doesn't is not to her liking. So she escapes again. She later uh, goes to Tilwin, and she chooses to, to to. She has a kind of a romantic relationship. It seems to be a romantic relationship with a soldier of the Tiradores de Ifni, that is a military uh, battalion. Uh, she stays uh, with him for for a while, and then until he tells her, I, it seems that he is tired of. Her. So he tells her that she, can't, she cannot stay with him for for a long time, and he gives her this excuse that uh, the, the Spanish government doesn't allow the change of quote unquote protectors. In this period, actually, we see the the, the spread of this new terminology: the master become protector, the slave becomes uh, impoverished uh, relative or dependent uh, relative. So the, the terminology the terminology that denotes explicit uh, explicitly denotes slavery, sla- slavery explicitly disappears and we have these euphemisms now. After she's ditched by this uh, soldier, she goes to to see the Ifni, which is the capital of the of the Ifni. She she goes she goes into uh, what I think is domestic service uh, with two Spanish officers, and then she finds another tiradores soldier to live with, uh, but he leaves for the Canaries. So she goes back to this uh, merchant in Barak from whom she actually uh, fled, uh, perhaps in search of uh, better opportunities. And then she uh, is kidnapped by two men who take her on, the ca- on, a, on, a, on a camel journey across uh, the Sahara towards uh, Samara. And I don't know how long this journey takes, but I estimated, given the, the, the speed of camel travel and the distance, that it would be somewhere between uh, a week and, and 10 days. Interestingly, these two uh, kidnappers change her clothes uh, and uh, let her, they give her an attire that's more proper for, uh, for, for the Sahara rather than her traditional northern clothes. Apparently, that is important uh, for sale purposes. And because they, I think they try to pass her as as someone from from the region rather than from from outside, and uh, the the trip is characterized by uh, by poses, because every time that they spot a military control post, they have to wait until darkness so they could slip by it, until they reach uh, the city of Smara, and then there. Two members of, of the Spanish armed forces come uh, to try to buy her. They offer two camels and and one small girl a slave 
it returned for this basoda. But the two kidnappers, sellers now, um, they do not uh, they do not agree with for 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 this price. That is that's of course her story. Is that these two, uh, one sergeant, one corporal, tried to buy her, but later they themselves would would declare to the to the to the, to the Spanish officers that they uh, actually did not want to buy her, and that because they know that um, a purchase of slaves is prohibited under law. Most probably, her story is right, and, and, and not the, what what, uh, what the sergeant uh, uh, claimed. Um, funny enough, uh, after um, a few attempts at selling her, are futile because people are afraid that she's stolen, so they might uh, uh, come into legal problems if they buy her. They end up uh, with the father of this uh, sergeant, with whom they did not agree on the price. And they sold her. They sold her for uh, four male camels, four female camels, and two young uh, uh, camels, uh, which was a very good price. And usually, female slaves would bring more than uh, male slaves in terms of uh, uh, of the of the price. And this is also still, in large part, a barter economy. So uh, the purchase uh, uh, for 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 purchasing a slave, you use camels in addition or instead. Of, uh, of money, but in this, uh, in this, uh, I mean, I summarized it. But in this uh, uh, odyssey, which, uh, which I call it, we see that uh, Masuda uh, tries to to escape several times. That she tries to um, not not always try to find liberty, but tries to find a better master, protector uh, than the one than the one before that. And that she tries to to exercise some choice in where she ends up, but after that we don't know where, what what her destiny is, and we don't know why she didn't take her son with her, or if she was capable of taking the son. Especially since her flight was motivated by the by the abuse of that son. So, but eventually she did come in contact with the Spanish uh, authorities who, who wrote down her story. So um, one of the possibilities is that she uh, remains with, uh, with, uh, with the people she was bought by, mm. if she agrees, of course, because uh, one, of the, one of the ways the Spanish solve this matter is uh, so-called entrusting the new purchaser with the slave on the condition that he would not resale uh, the slave. But the problem is that since she was kidnapped as a child, there is no way of sending her back to her tribe of origin, the Haha tribe in, in, in South Morocco, because a lot of time has passed. The other alternative would be to send her back to the father of her son with some reconciliation attempt. But hmm. we don't know what happened. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a fascinating story, a real odyssey, as you say, and uh, one where I think we can learn about the a lot about the slavery system there just from that one example. Um, so what really strikes me is the complicity of the authorities, whether it's the military or the police are in some cases actually involved in the system, which clearly involves a tremendous amount of abuse even though they were the ones that were, were supposed to be trying to end it. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, even if, if, if some idealistic uh, Spanish officer 
would love to intervene, uh, and a lot of them had sympathy with the with these slaves. Uh, the problem with the armed forces uh, in in the Sahara is that uh, most of them were formed by uh, uh, native uh, people, many of them tribal members, who ha either personally had slaves or they had relatives who had slaves. So not always reliable in in, in terms of of combating slave trafficking. I also wonder if you could uh, tell us about one more example, the story of Mulud, uh, because I thought that was also um, a fascinating one because it shows us how the path of uh, freedom for a male slave uh, could be quite different from that of a female um, slave, as you discussed. So could you tell us a little about uh, his story as well? Yes. So um, this Mulud is... Uh, upon the death of his master, he is manumitted. And the problem is that the sons of this master uh, decide to sell him and not abide by uh, by the testament. And uh, this Mulud is sold to to a man for or for also a considerable more than a dozen camels, which is a considerable price. Um, and after two years, he flees and goes to the Spanish and uh, joins the the armed forces and becomes uh, protected by the government. So when his owner comes to reclaim him, they tell him, well, no, he's now under our protection. So there's no way we are going to give it to you. Now, this owner tries to have a refund from uh, the brothers uh, who, who sold Mulud. Um, and he tells them that, he's, uh, that they deceived him because they sold him a freed man, not a slave. Of course, this, this is a back and forth, and, and, and they contest uh, this. But apparently, there were uh, witnesses to the testament. So he was indeed uh, freed by, by, by his master. And uh, but except this, this, this owner, he doesn't let it go. I mean, the, um, Molud escapes in 1937, and until 1944, he, uh, the, previous, the, the owner, uh, the so-called owner, the one who purchased Molud, Still uh, comes back to the to the offices of the of the Spanish, uh, uh, demanding the return of uh, of his uh, of this Mulud. Now, for, now there is another point actually, the, because for the Spanish, the rules of the game were respected. He, he was manumitted. He was a freed man. There is no way that he he's not the same as any other uh, slave, and and they have established uh, sufficiently enough for them that he was a freed man, and therefore. Uh, there is no there is no basis however flimsy to 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 give him back and now he's also taken the initiative to escape so based on their policy they they helped him and, and since he became uh, a member of the, of the armed forces yeah well but that's also interesting that the the so-called owner went to the spanish authorities and expected them to do something about it no one questioned the fact that that he would want to be the owner of a slave there, there, are, there are more uh, uh, examples of owners coming to the Spanish and, and trying to reclaim runaway slaves and uh, uh, admonishing the Spanish, even telling them, if you keep doing this, then all of slaves are going to, to, to escape if, if they know that there is a, that every time they come to the Spanish, they will gain their freedom. Escaping for a slave was not without significant risks, and it took courage, because you not only had to answer the question where were you going to live and how were you going to live, even if your escape was successful, but you had to deal with the desert, which is an inhospitable environment. 
people sometimes get lost in the desert, they die of thirst. And if you're an escaping slave and you are too slow, you might get recaptured and meet a severe punishment. So depending on where you are when you take the decision to escape, you might need to take without permission a camel in order not to die of thirst in the desert, in order to outrun any uh, one pursuing you, and perhaps also to uh, cross the border and go into a different jurisdiction that might protect you. Uh, but then a complication arises, of course, because you are not merely an escaping slave, but you have also committed a criminal offense by stealing a camel. And that means that the Spanish authorities, and also the French ones, might not be too accommodating towards this attempt by a slave to gain uh, his uh, freedom, and that the criminal offense would take precedence. Even though this criminal offense might have been necessary in order to escape a clearly illegal situation, at least illegal in theory. And there's an example of this in 1950, where a tribal notable comes to the Spanish authorities and complains about a so-called relative of his, of the black race, as is described in the report, called Mbarak. And this Mbarak, supposedly, according to this tribal notable, took 10 camels with him and escaped to Mauritania. Mbarak would uh, later uh, claim that uh, he only took one camel and he had no idea about the nine others. The French authorities returned that one camel, but the Spanish insisted on uh, punishment and on returning Mbarak because this was a robbery committed on, in, in, on Spanish territory. And they, uh, it was, they deemed it necessary the, uh, to avoid a repetition of such an occurrence, but also to avoid creating the impression that Mauritania could uh, serve as a safe haven. Uh, even though one of the Spanish reports admitted that, I quote, this issue of the blacks is a bit delicate, unquote. So uh, despite this acknowledgement, they still insisted on pressuring the French into returning back. And it appears that after three months, uh, they agreed with the French uh, to, to return him. So this shows that the, that the Spanish and also the French were not always willing to accommodate uh, an escape by a slave and that there were limits on what they were capable or even willing to do to facilitate such an escape. And that such and that such criminal offense, sometimes necessary in order to, to escape slavery, would take precedence about the illegal slavery itself. Interestingly, though, another infraction committed by a slave could prove sometimes beneficial. If a slave was suffering from very dire situation, very bad treatment, he could look for a new master and pass into his possession. And the way to do that is if he found someone who, uh, whom he thought to be uh, a better master, he could either injure his ear or the ear of one of his children. And this is the interesting part. Because if a slave has limited rights, he also has limited responsibilities. And the current master, or soon to be former master, is liable for the damages done to, to the man or his child, and therefore would have to cede his slave. But uh, this is not an example of a slave escaping towards freedom, 
but simply trying to uh, improve his cerebral conditions and going from from a certain very bad state of affairs to another state of affairs, but still within the framework of, of slavery. Perhaps not too dissimilar to the attempts made by Ms. Auda when he when she uh, tried to find new protectors slash romantic partners. But this tactic of cutting the ear, with the passage of time, well, at first it did not occur too often, and with the passage of time it became even rarer. And it, 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 there was not always a guarantee that the injured party would accept this person as, as, as a slave. And there is an incident in 1948 where a slave who suffered a lot at the hands of his master, also malnourishment and physical abuse, ran away. And as he was being pursued, uh, he found uh, a child and then he cut his ear with a stone with the hope that his father would accept him as slave. Uh, but the father uh, unfortunately rejected uh, this poor man, did not want to take possession of him. This poor man was then detained in, in, in a cell, uh, waiting for the matter to be resolved. And unfortunately, we do not yet know how it was resolved. We only know that the Spanish authorities uh, asked the current master from whom this slave uh, was trying to escape to come forward. So who knows, perhaps they managed to, in quote, reconcile him, unquote, with the, with the former master and, and convince him to return to him. Unfortunately, we do not know. If we look at these stories uh, as a whole and others that you've investigated, how would you say that they can help us to understand the nature of slavery in Western Sahara and the Spanish colonial authorities' approach to it. Perhaps one one small detail that I neglected to mention mm -hmm. was the that distinction between uh, the slaves who were born within the tribe and uh, are usually called the Nama slaves and the Terbia slaves, those who are uh, either purchased or, uh, well, in previous times uh, captured, uh, and who have. Uh, and these for therefore these these in, I mean if I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to 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 use this uh, term imported kind of uh, mm -hmm. uh, these have they, they have uh, less emotional uh, connections with the tribe they they find themselves presenting and they have memories of the place where they came from so they could they are more likely to run away than those who were born within within the tribe because those within the tribe they they don't know any other uh, any other people any other uh, possible host if they if they if they flee uh, whereas those who were uh, purchased or or captured they they could they 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 were had more incentives to to run away and those and, and the slaves who were um, born within the tribe usually were uh, treated better than those who were uh, purchased, especially if they shared some milk relationship with the sons of, uh, of, uh, of their masters. But how these uh, examples make, uh, make us understand the slavery system? Well, the Spanish, as I said, the Spanish uh, had the policy of 
what Matteo uh, just mentioned uh, called uh, the Hara Fair, which was uh, let as long as there are no incidents, there are no problems, then let this uh, continue. We do not, uh, the idea was not to disturb uh, the peace between them and the and the uh, tribes. Um, but at the same time, of course, they were uh, if some slave would take the initiative, then they would help. Either that, or when they put on the spot. I mean, such incidents would uh, also happen not only in the 1940s, which was the main focus of my research, but also later in the 60s. Um, there was an incident where a Moroccan, uh, I'm sorry, a Sahrawi who was a member of the uh, parliament, of the Spanish parliament, as was a deputy from, from the Sahara. He came to claim a slave that was donated to him by another, but this slave, this woman and her children were married to a free man who worked in uh, in a government-funded school. So that put the, the Spanish uh, officer on the spot and uh, led to an almost fatal confrontation with, with the men of that uh, uh, deputy. Uh, so here we, because, yeah, because the, the, this, this officer, he couldn't fathom that uh, Spain uh, in the 60s, a uh, member of the United Nations, that there could help give slave to someone who was also uh, a member of Spanish parliament. But perhaps uh, uh, one more one more addition um, mm -hmm. is that there's no questioning the the legitimacy. There is no practical questioning the legitimacy of the of the institution of slavery, and there is no abolition campaign or information campaign among the tribes or among the slaves that uh, this is a wrong institution. That uh, even the slaves themselves, when they come and ask for help. They uh, based their their attempt at gaining freedom on uh, either abuse or uh, the fact that they were actually uh, uh, freed, but they were cheated of their uh, freedom. So even the slaves, uh, they do not. I mean, at least in these communications, that in these documents, they do not question the institution of the slavery itself. No slave comes forward. We say who says, actually, I'm treated well, but I just want to be free. No, it's always tacit acceptance of the of the rules of the game that I'm I'm going to be free if one either I'm manumitted or I'm severely maltreated. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Ali, for coming on the program. It's been uh, really interesting to hear some of these um, discoveries that you made, and uh, I wish the best of luck to you as you continue this uh, research. And I'm sure. Uh, dis discover much more about these uh, structures of the of the society there. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. 